Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Chief Operations Officer at Young Australians in International Affairs, Kate Clayton, and Co-Founder and Executive Director of the Youth National Security Strategy, Dom Dwyer, join Will Stoltz to explore the perspectives of young Australians in national security and international affairs. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Kate, Dom, it's great to have you join me for a discussion. I wanted to speak with you because you've both been part of uh, organisations that are seeking to, you know, amplify the voice and influence of young people in national security and foreign affairs, albeit obviously in different ways for your respective organisations. So in a broad way, this mission of involving young people in such policymaking is kind of, you know, it's intuitively important as to why we should be doing that for the simple fact that many of the kind of national security and foreign policy decisions um, are going to have pretty prolonged intergenerational impacts, right? Um, but I guess more specifically, kind of based on the insights that you've had in your respective organisations, um, what are the kind of particular issues that you think young people have, I suppose, distinctly different perspectives on compared to um, previous and older generations? Um, Kate, we might start with you first. Yeah, I think what's particularly interesting about my generation, so those born in the 1990s and the 2000s, is their focus and interest in Asia. So we kind of grew up in a post-US primacy world. 9-11 would have happened when we were in primary school, or for many of those, we weren't even born. And for many of us, you know, we watch K-pop videos, we listen to streams on TikTok, we're engaging with all sorts of media and networking platforms that creates a much more multipolar media landscape. So I think we're increasingly engaged with the world around us because of our access to technology, growing up on Twitter, on Tumblr, on all of these online blogs. And I think that's created a generation that's a lot more engaged with Asia than ever before. And that's also paired by a government push towards engagement with Asia. A lot of us have done new Colombo Plan scholarships. We've done other exchanges in the region as well. So I think the region and young people, both in the region and in Australia, are increasingly engaged with Asia. And I think that really shapes their outlook on international affairs in terms of who they want to engage with. So perhaps less so the United States, the UK, are kind of traditional partners, but we're looking a lot more outwards in the region than ever before. So, Dom, I'm interested to kind of get your um, thoughts, I suppose, from the insights that you've garnered on um, whether there are particular issues that you think young Australians have, I suppose, a, a distinctly different perspective on compared with previous generations. Well, I'd make the first point that from 
my experience seeing the kind of issues that young people grappled with throughout the whole policy workshopping phase of the youth national security strategy, it became pretty clear that um, they didn't have a fundamentally different sense of what the problems are in the first place, right? And, you know, that's probably a good sign. I think it would be um, a symptom of uh, serious intergenerational dysfunction if we had we're living in these totally different realities. Um, so, you know, climate change, of course, cost of living, um, uh, the breakdown of democratic politics. Um, these are the biggest issues for young people. And I would say that they're the biggest issues for society at large. But to get to the heart of your question on, on how they uh, think differently about them, which I, I definitely think they do, I would emphasize a few points, one of which is that young people prioritize issues differently. Um, they put a far greater emphasis, I would say, on the long term, and that means they're kind of prepared to bear more um, short-term costs to secure their longer-term future. I would say that they also have uh, a far keener sense of the interconnection of a lot of these issues. Um, they're quite global thinkers, and I think that feeds into a, an appreciation of the need to tackle climate change, cost of living, even our Pacific policy, all in these kind of concurrent and complementary ways because they're all interdependent um, as problems. Young, young Australians are arguably, you know, they're looking at, you know, you were speaking there, Dom, about the, the, the future outlook that young Australians are being confronted with and, and perhaps having a longer-term view. Um, but that, that future that, you know, the next generation of leaders are going to have to lead the country through is, is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty uncertain one, to be entirely honest. Um, and I think already younger generations have been pretty hard hit by recent disruptions caused by things like um, the pandemic in particular. So I guess in, in what ways do both of you think that kind of current global uncertainty is impacting how that next generation of leaders are going to deal with the world? Kate, we, we might go to you first on that one. Yeah, I think in terms of just dealing with the kind of constant stream of international crises, I was watching the invasion in Ukraine on my phone on TikTok, or I would look at what's happening in different towns in Ukraine on my Snapchat maps, which is such a bizarre and personal way to kind of consume information about crises. And as we saw with COVID and the kind of constant doom scrolling, and I was listening to, it was a 7am podcast, and they were interviewing some of the schools for strike students and even this generation that are what 10 years younger than me have this really kind of pessimistic existential doom about them in terms of the future of the crisis whereas I look at those of us in our 20s and I think we have a little bit more optimism for how we're going to manage these threats and I think Dom you made that really good point about the linkages and that we're able to link these different issues and I think that also makes it a little bit easier to kind of unpack this global uncertainty and how we deal with it because we can kind of see how all of these issues interlink you know we look at the transformation of how security has evolved in our generation alone we've seen the shift from states as being the key actors in security issues to now being you know terrorism non-security threats such as the ones that Don mentioned earlier as well as COVID climate change and I think as you said it's these linkages that's really helping us to unpack this uncertainty and also see where we can make an impact policy-wise and which specific areas of those linkages that we can build upon. I would definitely agree on the point that um, young people are rightly quite anxious about our long-term future in the wake of all these compounding crises that 
we were told were once, you know, black swan events, one in a hundred year floods, but it just feels like every single year we have multiple um, once in a century crises. And I think that generates this compounding sense of anxiety. But what I would stress is that young people aren't nihilistic. Um, we're often talked about as if we are this kind of defeated and disengaged generation um, that's putting our head in the sands like emus. But from my anecdotal experience, and I'm sure Kate would find this too with all the passionate young people um, that are part of Yaya, um, young people really are um, quite active and courageous and pragmatic in trying to grapple with these challenges. They're not defeated by the uncertainty that we're facing. And so I think that's a really inspiring thing about our longer term prospects as a society. You know, I think the, the future is in safe and brave hands. That's nice and uplifting. I like that. But I guess when we get to that point of young people influencing decision makers, you know, it's, it is, if we're being honest, it's a pretty crowded space out there for those that are seeking to kind of grab the attention of, of policy leaders, whether it be um, your organisations, but other, other think tanks, commentators, you know, all sorts of people that are jockeying for influence. So I suppose what are the approaches that your respective organisations, Young Australians in International Affairs and the Youth National Security Strategy, what are the approaches that your organisations are kind of taking to try and achieve influence for, for younger people? Kate, you might jump in first there. Yeah, I think we kind of maintain at Young Australians and International Affairs a regular stream of content. So we have our career sources, which I think is really great, where the team help with CVs. They also list all of the fantastic volunteer organisations that we have in Australia. I talk to my peers overseas and they'll come here for exchange and often remark just how exciting and vibrant our youth diplomacy sector is. And I think that's a really exciting thing is that we all build off each other and work off each other. So at Yaya, we have as well our Young Women to Watch annual series, which is a list of fantastic young women in international affairs. We have our Insights blog, our Policy Lab, where we publish policy briefs. And we also have things like the Future Leader series, which is happening right now. And it's workshops on space. Previously, we've done it on the US Alliance on the Pacific and also our conference, which is in September 8th and 9th at the ANU, our Future 21 conference. So I think what these groups do is they often work together in these sorts of things. But, you know, we pick our different silos and our different niches. YNSS does the best job at doing these security simulations. The blogs that you publish are absolutely phenomenal and things that we've all shared with each other. And I think there's a really strong peer network in that we've all worked with each other in one of these organisations at some point. And I think that's going to create networks and engagement for the future when we go into the workforces as well. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. 
Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, Dom, tell us about the the work of the Youth National Security Strategy. You guys have been going for about a, a year now. Tell us what the the strategy is, and I suppose what approach you've been taking to involve young Australians in its development. Yeah, thank you. So, basically, the Youth National Security Strategy um, has been a year long initiative that's brought forty two emerging leaders from every state and territory together um, to give a quite truly national but also truly generational um, perspective on how Australia should be uh, tackling the the kind of hybrid threats we're facing in a more holistic way. Um, We thought it was really important to make this uh, a truly representative thing, which is why we took a, uh, made a lot of effort to kind of outreach to universities and youth groups across the country. Um, our, rep- our final representatives who co-authored the strategy have ended up uh, representing every state and territory, which was um, really exciting. And what they've been building over a very uh, patient and Herculean effort over the last year in dozens of uh, policy workshops is a very um, novel strategy, but also a super practical one. Um, I think the value out of um, the strategy that will should be online by the uh, time that this yeah. uh, podcast is yep. out um, is that it actually has really concrete, specific policy solutions. Um, I stumbled across this tweet that I found quite funny and I imagine many public servants who might be listening would have sympathy with. It was, um, you know, the policymaker goes, I need a solution. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the academic promptly replies, here's a critique. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think in terms of what we were trying to do, we we were very conscious of not being, admir- being another admirer of the problem. Yeah. Um, and so that's why uh, we made the effort and, you know, at some risk to put out some really specific ideas about what Australia can do. And I think that explains why we've uh, really gotten a hearing so far. We've, um, we expected a far more up, um, uphill battle, but in reality, all of these doors were open for us before we even had to knock. And I think that reflects the fact that there is not only an appetite for fresh perspectives, but a, a real hunger for actual policy solutions that can be implemented. And so that's the the extra effort that we really went to to try and ensure that the agenda had influence. Yeah, that's really exciting. And, and it sounds like both the organizations have really taken some some innovative and creative approaches to, um, yeah, really pushing on that door. Um, I suppose, you know, to, to kind of play devil's advocate, I, su- I suppose, to the um, the overarching goal that, that uh, you guys and, and many other similar organisations are trying to achieve of, you know, really elevating the influence of young people in policy making. I mean, I don't want to be ageist, but to, but to be frank, on face value, there doesn't appear to be a lot of progress in terms of getting younger people into the kind of key positions of influence. So, you know, f- for example, I just kind of pulled together just a couple of kind of data points, I guess, you know, um, 
the proportion of young people, this is according to the Bureau of Statistics, oh, sorry, the Australian Public Service Commission, the proportion of young people aged 30 years or under in the public service um, has actually declined over the last 20 years, while the proportion of people over 50 has actually never been higher in the public service. Um, you know, we, we can point to some other anecdotal things. Um, Anthony Albanese at 59 is the oldest person to have won government from opposition. Um, and perhaps more strikingly, we have, you know, Joe Biden, 79, the oldest president in US history. And I think it's interesting to kind of compare this with past eras, right, where, say, for our grandparents' generation, um, I'm going to associate myself with your generation, (laughs) (laughs) 29 and holding. Um, So, like, compare this with our grandparents' generation, you know, where, for example, in the public service, like, you could have actually been a departmental secretary or an agency head, you know, in your 40s, sometimes even in your 30s. You know, there are remarkable cases of people like... um, you know, Doc Evert, who he was appointed to the High Court, this was in the 1930s, but he was appointed to the High Court at the age of 36. Um, or Alf- Alfred Brooks, the first DG of, of ASIS, he was just 32, which is, which is kind of mind blowing and would obviously be impossible today. But I guess I'm, I'm interested to get, I suppose, your thoughts on, on what are, what's the reason behind that? Like, is it just a longevity thing that people are able to work? into older age and therefore able to stay in positions of influence longer than the past? Or do you think there are kind of structural barriers in place that are preventing younger people um, obtaining kind of higher levels of influence that they might have had uh, in the past? Kate, what do you reckon? Yeah, this is such a good question, Will, and one that I had never really thought about in a kind of practical basis. But I think it's kind of a mix of both. People are working into older age a lot more we know that as well but I think there's also some structural issues that are you know impeding or that also create a lot more of a competitive environment for young people getting into the workforce you know everyone says that getting into that DFAT grad program is more about luck than skill so it's an increasingly what's the word there's increasingly more people applying for fewer jobs and that's going to naturally affect younger people because they're not going to be preferenced in these jobs and also I think the stakes for sorry I think the I think the qualifications for education have increased so increasingly young people are getting master's degrees and that's again another one two three years that they're not in the workforce as well whether or not they're traveling we've had we've had COVID with the great resignation. So I think it's a combination of structural issues and of cultural issues. I um, very much agree with uh, the qualification uh, point you draw out. I think we do live in this fundamentally kind of credentialist society, Mm -hmm. you know, in which you need the certificate, you need the degree, you need the ticket to ride um, in one form or another. And um, especially as we're becoming more educated as a society, particularly at the tertiary level, um, which is a great thing. Um, but one consequence of that is there has been a kind of inflation effect on a lot of these credentials mm-hmm. where you can get um, less and less far with uh, a qualification like an undergraduate degree, which in my parents' era would have been a guaranteed ticket to um, mm. quite high-level employment. And so... The effect from the perspective of many young people is that the ladder feels like it's the first rung of the ladder for long-term employment feels like it's rising ever further out of reach. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know what can directly be done 
Um, there's no simple fix. I mean, nothing is going to uh, change, for example, the competitiveness of a government grad program. Mm. Um, so, so long as we have more of these credentials, they'll, they'll, it'll get more and more competitive and that will be harder and harder for young people in relative terms to, to get that spot. But I think it does really speak to the value of organisations like Yaya, and I'd like to think the YNS too, in terms of um, being this empowering thing in which young people build their own ladders mm. with this nice stepping stone in which young people have this opportunity to upskill, um, to think about issues, to also, in, particularly in Yaya's case, to have a platform to demonstrate um, the sophistication of their thinking or their new ideas. Um, so those things are really valuable. And I think in terms of solutions, cultivating that youth space so that there are more of these stepping stones mm. um, can overcome the way in which the ladder is getting far, further away. Yeah, I like that. And I, and I think that it sounds like it's also quite helpful to overcoming some of the cultural barriers that Kate touched on. You know, it, it, does, it does strike me that we, we do still have a pretty rigid perception in our society that age equals experience. Um, and so if you're kind of perceived as being too young, you, you're almost just not going to be even um, kind of given that first first shot at a role. Um, ha- have you kind of found that, Kate, with with some of the things that you guys have been publishing, like your, your shorter form articles that you, you think you've kind of helped demonstrate that um, it's not just uh, not just age that matters to sh- showing that people can have kind of meaningful insights into some of these issues? Definitely. And I think that it kind of goes back to, I mean, this is broadly going off what you guys were talking about earlier, is that the strength of YNSS is the policies and the policy implications. And working in the university sector, students aren't really taught how to write and conduct policy. And that's the skill that a lot of them are going into the workforce with. So it's these kind of youth organisations like YNSS and like Yaya's Policy Lab that are teaching them these policy skills that they're going to be learning in the future. And the op-eds are a fantastic way to kind of get your ideas out there, to kind of work out how to synthesise and analyse issues and weigh up their risks that perhaps universities don't necessarily teach students because they're being taught to write, you know, essays that are 2,000 words. I'm sure you would have found a similar thing at YNSS is that you're teaching a lot of these students in their 20s for their first time how to write policy and how to think about writing policy as well. And I think that that's one of the key skills that these youth organisations do and that's going to help them with the workforce and kind of give them that competitive edge in a pretty oversaturated workforce. What about the way that um, young people kind of communicate on these issues? Because I know, Dom, um, it, people will be able to look at the strategy now at the time of listening to this. Um, I understand that you guys have taken a pretty creative approach into how you communicate the strategy. Do you think that there's um, a generational difference there in the sense that young people want to consume information and, and reflect information in kind of a slightly different way to past generations? I think that's definitely true. I mean, with digital natives, um, it's our natural ecosystem to um, convey and uh, digest information in those kind of forms. So for context, um, we took the approach of presenting the strategy actually as a, a digital interactive um bit like the Asia Power Index, if you're familiar with that. Um, and so it's quite exciting. But I would also say that I think it's we we chose it because 
not just out of this kind of millennial desire to have an interactive experience, but because we do think it is uh, a, a more effective way of communicating per se, mm. um, and that there would be very much a value in um, government doing this too. I mean, the the these kind of 200-page PDFs that mm. I'm sure many um, employees of the departments who produce them haven't read in full either um, probably isn't the most effective way of um, conveying policy going forward. And so we wanted to, to shake up not just the, the policy paradigm of the things that we specifically commented on, but the, the manner of communicating it in the first place. And I hope that um, contributes to the impact we uh, hope the YNSS to have. Yeah, it's really exciting. Certainly, we, I think we've all um, had to slog it through the lengthy white papers and those yeah. sorts of documents. And uh, yeah, you do often think there's going to be a, be a better way. Um, you know, we, we've we've spoken about um, you know how that next generation of leaders can achieve influence and and the barriers that they're facing. I mean, it would be I suppose remiss of us in this conversation not to also acknowledge that the national security and, and foreign affairs um, kind of careers environment um, is still comparatively inaccessible, you know, for certain demographics of Australians, right? Like, I mean, we're three white kids that have all gone to a group of eight unis. And and I hazard a guess that, you know, you can probably, amongst the three of us, we can probably pop most of our peers into that category as well. So, I mean, um, what do you think, um, you know, government agencies, unis or think tanks should kind of be doing differently to ensure that the broad space of international affairs is actually accessible for more young people like across Australian society. Um, you know, Kate, you guys, I understand, get a pretty pretty broad reach for your organisation. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier than people think it is to not have a man or to have more diverse voices. And there are people that want to be a part of these things. It's just a matter of reaching out to people. And I think it's key to having an actual security policy and international affairs landscape that legitimately represents Australia. As you said, we're three white kids here. Even me growing up in regional Victoria, we don't really hear about these national security and international affairs issues. I think having diverse international relations and national security policies is just reflecting Australia. And I think government agencies, think tanks, universities need to do a much better job because then our security policies are only going to represent a really small group of Australia. And that's not having a cohesive foreign policy. We've seen Penny Wong launch the First Nations foreign policy. We're still waiting to hear a little bit more information on what that actually looks like. But I think that's a really good step to having a foreign policy that is actually representative of Australia. I think this is um, such an important question. It was something that we were super conscious of when we were particularly going through the application uh, process because, you know, security is a... Um, not particularly inclusive space in the first place. Mm. Um, it's a space that many people don't naturally, many of the people that we want to be part of the conversation to enrich it, um, don't naturally think of um, as uh, a place for them. Um, and so we were conscious of the fact that if we just, you know, opened our applications in general, the queue that would naturally form uh, wouldn't be a particularly diverse one. And what we did to offset that, which was a really easy thing to do that I think should be a much more active part of, um, you know, universities' approaches and that of think tanks and um, um, employment strategies for government departments was actually going out of our way to um, massively outreach to diverse groups in the first place. Um, and that 
resulted in the pool of people who applied in the first place being really diverse in a really valuable way. And that just naturally fed up into a very diverse um, final cohort of candidates without the need to um, actually implement a, a an, an affirmative action strategy mm. in, in the selection. And so I think that was a, a really valuable thing. And I would just make the, the kind of broader point that um, tilling, another thing that government can do um, quite valuably, I think, is really till the soil of the youth space that um, blossoms things like the wine assessing Yaya because um, these middle-way youth organisations um, they do attract a far more diverse um, group of young people than would apply to government in the first place. And so kind of cultivating these as a kind of feeder system of bright, diverse young Australians, I think would be a really strategic way of um, actually enriching the, the diversity of um, government and, um, you know, think tanks, universities too. Mm. Uh, you know, this conversation, we've, we've kind of focused thus far on um, the influence that that next generation of leaders can, can have on, on international affairs. But I, I kind of want to broaden the discussion before we, before we close to, to think about young people um, as, a, as a demographic, as a, as a kind of factor that's in, impacting international affairs in, in other ways. And, you know, something I guess in particular that I find quite interesting, if a little bit concerning, is... Um, you know the, the the typical kind of adage of low confidence among young people in um, in the democratic world, uh, the, the low confidence that they have in liberal democratic institutions. You know we we are probably all familiar with that Lowy Institute polling figure that shows that about thirty four percent of um, people under thirty are disaffected with democracy. And and since that polling, we've also seen some interesting trends. Say, for example, um, in the recent French presidential elections, you know, where young people have actually been kind of a key constituency for the electoral rise of kind of um, far right groups like Mar Marine Le Pen's party, as well as even far left organisations like um, led by M M uh, Um, You know, do you think there is? You know, do you think there is this is a, a, an acute disaffection among young people for um, current demo democratic politics and traditions, or um, is this kind of just a, a typical kind of um, fire of youth that that every generation kind of experiences? Kate, do you have a take on all of that? Yeah, it's such a famous quote that you go to think tanks and panels that are about young people, and they're always going to cite it. And I think. It's less emblematic of a kind of general shift away from democracies, but I think it's just reflective of young people feeling disenfranchised by the current political institutions, whether that's a government that's not enacting climate policy because, you know, without a climate, there's no future for these young people. So they see that as much more of an affront on their future. And I think it's emblematic of just a broader disenfranchisement with government and with politics, less so democracy, but I think young people just increasingly don't see governments that represent them. As we said, there's less young people in government, in policy positions than ever before. And I think what we're seeing is just broader trends of disenfranchisement in governments in general and less so about democracies specifically. I, um, I definitely agree um, with Kate in the sense that I think it's much more a disaffection with democratic policy 
um, politics in practice Mm -hmm. rather than a disaffection with democracy as a model per se. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it it really is a a symptom of um, the way in which policy and politics has broken down on so many key areas, particularly those that have uh, a significant intergenerational consequence of inequity, whether that's climate change, housing affordability. So I don't think we should be alarmed by the notion that young people are somehow kind of abandoning um, a belief in the in the values or institutions that constitute our um, society, but it does... Um, point to the the importance of actually uh, restoring um, function, representation, and um, equity in our politics in practice, so that we don't just uh, continue letting this vicious cycle slide down. Well, Kate, Dom, I've been pleasantly kind of uplifted by your responses to so many of the questions today. I think it's it's really um, insightful and inspiring to see what your respective organisations are doing. Um, I, I wish you both both for you and your organisations the best of luck, and thanks so much for joining me um, to have a, have a discussion today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Will. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.